All right, well, let me ask you to turn again to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we were last week in verses 16 and 17. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that Geyer Springs Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who love God and love others. I think she just wanted a Bible. Can somebody get her a Bible? <laughs> All right, well, making disciples, if we're gonna be faithful to the mission God has given us, making disciples requires a plan or a blueprint, and we find that blueprint in the Word of God. That's where we look, because as Jesus told us to make disciples, you remember in the Great Commission, he said we're to make disciples teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. So God's uh, word is the plan or the textbook for making disciples. And this morning, we're continuing our series we started last week called Foundations. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, we're simply reviewing our foundations. If you're a new believer in Christ, then we're introducing the fundamentals of our faith. And as we look at, at, our, at our core beliefs, I want to remind you, we said this last week, I want to remind you this week that our core beliefs are unchanging. They do not change with time or culture. They do not change with the thoughts or ideas of man. Why? Because our core beliefs come directly from God. God is unchanging, so his word is unchanging, and our core beliefs come from his word, and so they are unchanging. All right, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out, or your translation may say inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, we mentioned last week every word in the Bible, every word in this book has been given by God. It was given to men who penned it, but it wasn't their thoughts, it wasn't their ideas, it was God's word. Remember, remember last week we looked at seven attributes of the word of God, the fact that it's authoritative, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's eternal, it's clear, it's necessary, and it's sufficient or it's complete. We have everything we need in the Word of God. Now, I hope that in understanding those attributes, that not only convinces you that the Bible is unlike any other book, but hopefully it also uh, strengthens your faith in the Word of God and gives you a desire to build your life on His Word. That's what we just challenged these first graders to do, to build their life on His Word to completely obey uh, the Bible. Now, last week we looked at several passages as we walked through the attributes of God's Word, and I mentioned to you that um, if you were uh, conversing with a skeptic and you brought up some of those passages or some of those attributes, the skeptic would probably say, well, you're just trying to prove or trying to defend the Bible by using what the Bible says about itself. Now, let me just tell you up front, because I've talked to skeptics before, you can't prove anything to a skeptic, but you can sure give them something to think about. And this morning, that's exactly what I want to do, I want to give you two proofs today. I wish we had time for more, but two proofs that are simple enough that I think you can remember them and use them in a conversation with someone who's not convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. You may remember last year when we talked through the New Testament, as we looked at the miracles of Jesus, we made the point that the miracles were not his primary reason for coming. His primary reason for coming, his priority, was to preach the gospel. What the miracles did was they identified Jesus as the Son of God, and they authenticated the gospel message. If you look through the gospels, you see at the point when Jesus began to hand off the ministry and the disciples began to do ministry, began to preach the gospel, they also had miracle-working power. And again, 
it was to authenticate the message. Why? Because the Bible was not complete. They didn't have a written copy. Uh, they had the scrolls with the Old Testament. They didn't have a written copy of the Bible like we do today in, in every home. And so the message needed validation. Well, today we have the very words of God, but what about those who aren't convinced that the Bible is God's word? What about those who don't believe that? What do you say to someone who, who doesn't believe that the Bible is any more than just another work of literature written by men? How, how do you defend that? Well, this morning I want to start with archaeology. Archaeology is the branch of historical research that seeks to reveal the past by recovering and examining uh, artifacts, material, and records. So archaeology can either prove or disprove other historical accounts. Where, where does the Bible come in on that? Well, first of all, there's quite a bit of history in the Bible. Just from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament is about 1,500 years of history. And as you know, there's a 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testament. So there's a lot of history that's covered in Scripture. And liberal theologians and skeptics typically try to uh, discredit the Bible by advancing the idea that the Bible has historical inaccuracies. They believe that there are things recorded in the Bible, cities and places and, and uh, rulers um, that have never been proven that are inaccurate. And so they advance this theory that the Bible is inaccurate. Let me just say this morning, if it were proven in any way that any biblical historical information is inaccurate, then we can't trust the Bible for information about God. If it's proven that there's anything in the Bible that's inaccurate, any even historical inaccuracy, then we can't follow the moral teachings of the Bible. We can't trust its promises. We can't trust its view of what is to come. If there's anything in Scripture, if any part of the Bible is inaccurate, we have to declare the whole Bible inaccurate and not to be trusted. Typically, the great argument of historical inaccuracy begins with that declaration that, well, this city has mentioned the Bible, it didn't exist. This person's mentioned the Bible, it didn't exist. There's never been a record, never been artifacts found. And those who attack the historical accuracy of Scripture said that the writers were just writing folklore, just writing myths, trying to back up their spiritual teachings. Well, prior to the 19th century, there wasn't uh, a lot of archaeological discovery, and those attacks prior to the 19th century were really beginning to confuse people. Those attacks were gaining a lot of traction and doubt about the integrity of Scripture, but in the 19th century, archaeology suddenly exploded. Prior to the 19th century, there were people and places and dates only mentioned in the Bible, but as they began to dig in the 19th century beneath the surface of the earth, they started uncovering ancient cities and civilizations that no one ever knew existed. And so the, the unverified accounts of Scripture, the historical narratives that we read in the, in the Old Testament began to be vindicated because they were discovering these cities, they were discovering ancient writings. In fact, by the turn of this century, there were over 25,000 sites, archeological digs, that had a direct connection to the Old Testament period. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, just as with the Old Testament, New Testament history has been substantiated as fact by modern archaeological discoveries. Some of the places that have been discovered include the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Siloam, Jacob's Well, Pilate's residence in Jerusalem. 
What I'm trying to say to you this morning is archaeologists have verified biblical history as true and factual and, and accurate. There was one particular archaeologist in the late 1800s, early 1900s named Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey was a Scottish archaeologist, and he was not a believer. In fact, he was highly, highly critical of the New Testament, and specifically the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, both of which contained a lot of historical information that Luke penned. So Sir William Ramsey left Scotland. He went to Asia Minor strictly for the purpose of proving that Luke's Gospel and the Book of Acts were inaccurate. And he really began to dig in. He began to dig in Asia Minor and in Greece. And after many years of investigating every single detail, retracing every step that's mentioned and, and every place mentioned in the book of Acts, William Ramsey concluded that Luke was a great historian. In fact, he said he was a historian of the highest rank. William Ramsey said about historians that the essential quality of a great historian is that he is truthful. What he says must be trustworthy. And of Luke, he said, he is one of the most, if not the most trustworthy historians of the ancient world. What Ramsey found as he went and investigated is that Luke accounts in the gospel and, and in, in the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts were trustworthy and true. And as he studied in that area, he found that everything he read in the New Testament and everything he compared to archaeology was accurate down to the tiniest detail. In fact, Sir William Ramsey, the great archaeologist, was so impressed with his discoveries that he not only became a believer, he became one of the leading New Testament scholars of his day because archaeology proved to him that the Bible, in fact, was everything that it claimed to be. Well, what does that mean to you and me? We're not really interested in the study of archaeology. It's probably boring to most or many of us. Well, it means we can place great confidence in putting our faith in the Bible as the truth. Why? Because no archaeological discovery has ever disproved one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible. In fact, archaeology not only does not disprove, but archaeology confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. Dr. Nelson Gluck, who was considered the dean of Palestinian archaeologists, confirmed the historical accuracy of the Bible. Here's what he said. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear, outline, or exact detail historical statements of the, of the Bible. Now listen to this last part. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. I'll give you an example of that. How does proper evaluation of Scripture lead to amazing discoveries? Standard Oil Company, many years ago, sent one of its men to Egypt, and it was heavily, Standard Oil Company was heavily involved in the exploration and discovery and operation of oil wells in Egypt. Now, there's nothing particularly significant about that. Many countries work with other countries in development and exploration, but what is significant about Standard Oil going to Egypt is the reason they went to Egypt. One of the company directors was reading his Bible. He was a believer. He was reading his Bible, and one morning he was reading in Exodus where the mother of Moses covered that little boat or basket with slime and pitch. And he reasoned where there is pitch, there is oil. And if there was oil there back then, 
the oil is probably still there now. And so Standard Oil sent a man by the name of Charles Witzschott, a geologist and oil specialist to Egypt, where oil was discovered. Just understanding and reading the Bible can lead to discoveries. One other archaeological proof this morning, of one that you have some familiarity, it's probably one of the greatest and uh, best-known archaeological discoveries of all time, and that is of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in 1947 in an area called Qumran, where there were some caves. A shepherd boy who was tending his sheep, got kind of bored, started pitching rocks into these caves, and then he heard a little tinkling sound like glass breaking. And they went and they discovered in those caves some large sealed jars containing some scrolls. And inside those jars were 1,100 ancient manuscripts and more than 100,000 fragments, primarily written in Hebrew and Aramaic. What they discovered was significant portions of the Old Testament and even some entire books that were preserved. In fact, to date, we have every single book in the Old Testament except for the book of Esther in ancient documents. Those scrolls uh, inside the Dead Sea Scrolls dated back to the third century B.C. They were placed in the cave around A.D. 68, third century B.C. You understand when that is? Are you all with me? Third century B.C. That's how old these scrolls were. They were well-preserved because they were sealed in these jars and in a climate that was helpful to preserving them. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm for us the reliability of the Old Testament. The Bible that we now read, the Old Testament that you now read, is the same Bible that was originally written by those men to whom God gave the words. Well, what about the New Testament? Well, how reliable is it? For the New Testament, we have over 27,000 partial and complete copies dated within a few years of the original autograph. Now, the originals wouldn't last. They were written on parchment. They didn't last very long. And as I explained to you last week, there were men who were dedicated to the task of copying those texts down. We have some documents that are not very far removed from the original that we can look at today and compare to the scriptures we have today, both Old and New Testament, and they read the same. There is no other book in antiquity that has in, in such a short time span between the original copies that has so many, such a vast number of copies to compare to. One other significant fact about the Dead Sea Scrolls that leads into the second proof I want to give you this morning, the first being archaeology, not disproving anything in the Bible. The second proof I want to share with you this morning is this. Many of the Old Testament texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls contain predictive prophecy. The Old Testament has over two thousand predictive prophecies and of those two thousand predictive prophecies when we look at those predictive prophecies and see how they have come true in in the new testament and the time since then that's proof of the divine origin of scripture see a, a human mind human wisdom can't predict the future you say well what about gene dixon or nostradamus or some of these others every modern day prophet if you study everything they've written, has many predictive prophecies that failed. And most of the prophecies that they've written are so general and so nebulous, they could have multiple meanings. What's different about biblical prophecy? Well, biblical prophecy is very specific. Biblical prophecy is very detailed. Biblical prophecy is 100% accurate. Biblical prophecy authenticates the Bible. 
What have we said about the Bible? We said it's, it's God's word. Well, no other being other than an omniscient, holy God can predict the future. Now, let me give you something really powerful that I hope you'll, you'll kind of hang on to if you ever have a conversation about the accuracy of Scripture. I want to consider just one example from the Old Testament. There are over 2,000 prophecies. I want to consider one uh, example, one category, and that is messianic prophecy. Of the 2,000 prophecies, predictive prophecies in the Old Testament, 456 of those prophecies are specifically about Jesus. Everything you can think of about his life, his virgin conception, his birthplace, his genealogy, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, the fact that he's going to be crucified with thieves, not a bone would be broken, and yet his hands and feet would be pierced, that there would be darkness on the day of crucifixion. All of those things were prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ was born and lived and was crucified. Thallus was a first century uh, historian. He was, a, he was a pagan, and he confirmed in his history that darkness fell at noon on the day of the crucifixion. Well, that's prophesied back in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. And Thallus, in his record of history about the darkness that covered the earth at noon on the day of crucifixion, said that it was an eclipse. Well, there was another historian who was a contemporary of Thallus. His name was Julius Africanus. And he questioned in his history, he agreed that it was dark, but he questioned why Thallus said it was an eclipse when at that particular season of the year, the sun and the moon were diametrically opposed. There's no way an eclipse could have occurred. But here's the point of those histories. The darkness that was prophesied in the book of Amos, which was written in the 8th century B.C., between eight and 900 years before the coming of Christ, that darkness was prophesied, and two historians, among others, recorded it. So it was widely known that the earth became dark at noon on the day of the crucifixion. An unbelieving historian even wrote that. Now, he admitted it was true, but he had to come up with a natural explanation because he was an unbeliever. There's no way this could be a miracle of God. It was prophesied between eight and 900 years before Christ came. So, so here's the main point. There are Old Testament prophecies about Christ recorded in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, those copies dated back to two to 300 years before the coming of Christ. And all these things about Jesus were predicted. Jesus, you may not know this, Jesus was one of 40 different men who claimed to be the Messiah. 40 different Jewish men all claimed to be the Messiah. But Jesus was the only one who completely fulfilled every one of those 456 Old Testament prophecies. Are, are you getting this? Thank you. What are the odds? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's just take 10% of those prophecies, 48 of the 456. Peter Stoner, professor emeritus of science at Westmont College, said the chance of any one person fulfilling just 48 prophecies, 48 prophecies fulfilled in one person, has a probability of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And his number, his calculation was confirmed by the Committee of the American Science Affiliation. By the way, let, let me stop and say this. Science does not contradict the Bible. 
I don't have time to get into it today, but you can go through the Bible, and they're all kind of scientific facts, especially about our earth that are listed in the Bible, and none of those facts has ever been proven wrong. In 1861, the French Academy of Science published a little brochure of 51 facts that contradict the Bible. Of those 51 facts, not a single scientist today believes any of those facts are true. Science does not contradict the Bible. You may say, well, what about the theory of evolution? It's called the what of evolution? Theory. It's not fact. There is no scientific fact that can contradict the Bible. Science changes. The Bible never changes. But, but let me get back to the point. I want to give you a visual that confirms there has to be, there has to have been a supernatural agent that not only wrote, but also fulfilled these prophecies. 48 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus alone, a probability of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. What does that look like? Well, the state of Arkansas is 53,191 square miles. If you had one in 10 to the 157 silver dollars, it would cover the entire state of Arkansas 10 feet deep. Let that sink in for a minute. 53,000 square miles, if you had silver dollars, if you had as many as one in 10 to the 157th power, if you had that many silver dollars, it would cover the entire state of Arkansas 10 feet deep. Now, here's the odds of Jesus fulfilling just 48. Not, not all 456, which he did, but the, we couldn't calculate that. The odds of him fulfilling just 48 of those prophecies would be like me covering the entire state of Texas 10 feet deep in silver dollars and, and having taken ahead of time, without your knowledge, one silver dollar and put a mark on it and threw it into the pile and then tell you, I'm going to put you on a helicopter. You can take off. You're blindfolded, by the way. You can fly anywhere in the state of Arkansas you want to fly. At any point, you can tell the helicopter pilot to put the helicopter down. And when you step down and step off that skid, you just reach down and grab any one silver dollar. And your chance of grabbing that one that I marked is the same probability of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies. Apologist Josh McDowell once said that some people believe to accept the Bible and to accept the truth of Christianity, you have to kiss your brains goodbye. I would tell you that accepting the Bible and accepting Christianity takes some faith, but it's a reasonable faith. It's, it's not a blind faith. It's not a foolish faith. Archaeology and prophecy clearly authenticate, outside of the Bible itself, authenticate that the Word of God is accurate. And there's a lot more that we could cover, but I, I would trust the testimony of archaeology and the testimony of biblical prophecy, predictive prophecy, is convincing and encouraging to you so much so that you don't have trouble believing the authority and the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Word of God. We spend a lot of time on just this first phrase of 2 Timothy 3.16 because it's vital that we believe it, believe the Bible's the word of God and we place our faith in it. But if you remember last week, our final three attributes of the Bible were that it was clear, that it was necessary, it was sufficient. We need the word of God. How did Paul say it? All scriptures breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The only way that you can fulfill what God has for you as a believer, the only way you can fulfill uh, his purpose for your life is that you're equipped for every good work. Well, how does Scripture do that? How are we equipped for every good work? Scripture, if we're spending time in Scripture and allowing Scripture, the Holy Spirit of God works in us and uses his word to shape and prepare us for those good works that God has for us. You find yourself lacking meaning and purpose in life, it likely means you're not fulfilling the purpose for which God has made you. Ephesians 2.10, Paul said, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance before we were born for us to do. That's where we find our fulfillment in life. The word is profitable. Four things Paul says here. The word is profitable for teaching. What does that mean? Well, it's what we're doing. It's, it's teaching doctrine. It's teaching the base, basic precepts of our faith, helping us understand God and his character, helping us understand his will and his purpose for each of our lives, helping us know how to be saved, helping us know God's standard of holiness for our lives. Teaching. Our, our doctrine, the, the teaching of Scripture, should form our worldview, the way that we live life. But for that to work, we have to study the Word. Got to be grounded in Scripture. We, we have to be sure what we believe is biblical, and we have to recognize the Bible is the only source of truth for the matters of life. And we cannot change or compromise the truth. If God's Word says this is true, it doesn't matter what our culture says, it doesn't matter what any man says, it doesn't matter what is expedient in our day, this is truth. And this is what we live by. He says the Bible is also profitable for reproof. What is reproof? It's, it's rebuke for a wrong behavior or a wrong belief. James 5, James says, if you see a, a brother wandering from the truth, you need to bring him back. How do you bring someone back to the truth? You show them the truth. You expose them to the truth. You remind them of the truth. We need to know the word of God so that we can watch out for each other. We're not intended to try to live this life for Christ alone and try to figure out life alone. We're in this together. You know, when I think of reproving or rebuking, it's certainly not a pleasant task. And before I would reprove or rebuke anyone, I would certainly be certain that I've examined my own life first. You know, I had two different conversations this week, one with a, another staff person about uh, disliking uh, conflict. But the two passages that always come to my mind when I think about having to confront someone who's not living the way that God has called them to live are both in Proverbs chapter 27, chapter 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. What happens when you sharpen iron? Sparks fly. Heat's created. Not always a good thing, but it's necessary. And then in Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You know what? I don't need people coming up to me all the time telling me what a great person I am. I need people coming up to me telling me when I'm not being the person God has made me to be, when I'm not being faithful, when I'm not honoring him with my life. We, we rebuke believers who are not walking with Christ, and we rebuke them not based on what we think, but we rebuke them by calling them back to the truth. This is how God says we're to live. You're not living that way. The word is profitable for correction. That, that goes hand in hand with, with rebuke. The purpose of rebuke is not just to rebuke, it's, it's to create a change in course. It's a, it's a correction. 
And interestingly, this word here, this New Testament Greek word for correction, this is the only place in the New Testament that this Greek word is used. But in other Greek writing, this word that, that we define or we translate as correction refers to setting upright an object that has fallen. It refers to helping someone who has stumbled, helping them get back on their feet. With Scripture, when we have to rebuke someone with Scripture, we're able to restore them back to their right condition. We're able to help them go back to living a godly life. Finally, Paul says, the word is profitable for training in righteousness. That's, that's a positive term. It's not like rebuke and correction. Training in righteousness, you can think of like, like training a child, helping them grow up in proper behavior, helping them avoid pitfalls and even disasters. You know, as you think about what God's word is for, for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, a good way to, to describe and remember these four benefits is think about your Christian life as a train running down the track. Teaching shows you where the track is. This is where you belong. This is where you're supposed to run. Rebuke or reproof is telling you that you've gotten off track. Correction is showing you how to get back on track, and training in righteousness is teaching you how to stay on track as a believer. And Paul said that the word of God is profitable for all those things. Remember last week, 2 Peter 1.3, we have everything we need for life and godliness. It's all right here. Paul says in verse 17, it's profitable for teaching, reprove, correction, training in righteousness. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, the purpose of studying Scripture is not to learn doctrine. It's not to learn a lot of facts. It's not to impress people with your theology. And I've known people like that. You probably have too. People who can just spout Scripture right and left, but you look at their life and it doesn't line up. The purpose of studying doctrine and, and learning and studying the Scripture is not to develop some good theology. Scripture is given to us so we can do what Paul says here in verse 17. We can produce good works. Why? Because it honors God and that fulfills his purposes in us and through us. That's why we're taking the time to go back through and study the Scripture, study our doctrine, study the fundamentals of our faith, study our core beliefs, because God has called us to be complete and equipped for every good work. Well, how do we apply that this morning? I think question one is we think about archaeology and predictive prophecy and science and, and many other disciplines that we could talk about today. As we think about those things affirming and proving Scripture, the question for us today is, for me and you, is have I placed my full faith in Scripture? Do I believe it's completely authoritative and infallible and, and inerrant? Do I believe it is sufficient for my life, that it is necessary for my life as a believer? Do I believe that? Because if I do, that should certainly change the way I live. Do I see the necessity of Scripture? If you back up just above 2 Timothy 3.16 and 3.15, Paul told Timothy that Scripture is able to make you wise unto salvation. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul told the Philippians, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He said work out, not work for. Let me make that clear. 
You don't work to earn your salvation, but just as Paul told Timothy, Scripture makes you wise to salvation, just as he told the Philippians, you're to work out your salvation, he's saying the same thing. You need to be sure, if you're a child of God, that the Scripture has a place in your daily life, that it's evident in your life because you're studying Scripture and you're obeying Scripture. Is that true for you today? And what about if we just looked at and examined your life and held it up next to this book? Would your life indicate that you're a person of this book? I'm not asking you if you're perfect, certainly not. But does the general trajectory of your life show that you're producing good works that honor the Lord? That's why we study. That's why we dig in. That's why we want to have proper doctrine and a proper worldview so that we're living lives that honor the Lord and producing the good works he's called us to produce.